Will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, as we continue our series in that book, the title of which is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. You see that on the screen. We want everybody to be able to look at 1 Peter 3 along with us, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one to you, and it's marked at that passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. While they're doing that... Thank you all for praying for us while we were traveling last week, so we were not able to be here, and we certainly missed that, but we did have a safe trip getting our daughter down to Clearwater, Florida, to her first year of college down there. It was filled with uh, emotions, as you might imagine, but all in all, that first uh, that drop-off and now this first week for her has gone as well as could be, given that we thank the Lord that we are a close family, and we certainly are missing her. We think she's missing us, but uh, she's doing well under the, under the circumstances. In fact, some of you know the story that I told a few weeks ago in the Discovering God Hour about my having gone my freshman year to the denominational college of the church that I grew up in uh, down in Tennessee, but I only lasted two days, got homesick, came, came back home. And so on her third day, I texted her and said, congratulations. So she's already done better than her old man. According to Newsweek magazine in 2010, the average female will spend nearly, now you hear this number, nearly half a million dollars in her lifetime on hair, face, feet, hands, and body improvement products and procedures. Girls and women in our culture acquire an unhealthy vision for what they should be, and they get that from the media that presents them with endless presentations of ever thinner and more enhanced bodies and faces that give the illusion that the fountain of youth has really been discovered. And as always, what the world indulges is also a temptation for the church to imbibe. It's not just those girls who spend God's resources of time and money on getting the right tan and just the right look. The truth is, if we're honest, it's our girls and our women who succumb to the allure and the lie. Because the truth is, the images that this propels into a fascination with just having the the right look and the right face and the right body. Those images are fake. They're airbrushed images of chemically produced beauty that cost much more than you could ever spend, even if you contribute your nearly half million. The obsession with body image has helped create the anorexic in our young ladies and a general discontent with who they are because of how they look. And it's not just the girls and women. This is now what psychiatrists call the Adonis complex in young men. A few years ago, the Journal of Biblical Counseling featured an article which said, how do you make good sense of a young man wholly obsessed with the size and definition of his muscles? Many 16 to 35-year-old American males are now falling prey to what gets called Adonis complex. It's also called reverse anorexia, bigorexia, that is, appetite to be big, 
or more formally, muscle dysmorphia. An anorexic is too thin, but imagine she looks fat. A bigorexic is muscular, but imagine that he looks scrawny. Both are equally obsessed with appearance, but in opposite directions. One craves super slimness, the other hypermuscularity. But both endlessly obsess and self-destruct in the gap between aspiration and reality. Now, because of all of that, it's been going on for a few decades, some have started to rebel against the imposed requirement that we have to look a certain way, and they've decided that the last thing women in particular in our culture need is a makeover. What's needed is really a make-under. So one author went a year without makeup and then wrote a book about her experience. Katie Couric hosted her show a few years ago without makeup just to highlight the issue. The truth is, friends, all of us, male, female, young, old, we are all being looked at and evaluated. We're all being looked at by a sensual culture that bids us to conform and it evaluates how well we're doing. And teens and women are being looked at by boys and men who see them as objects to be viewed and used. But we're also being viewed by the world in general for whether we really have different values and priorities from the prevailing culture. And we're also being viewed, now hear this, by our God for what we demonstrate to be most important to us. And the passage that we're going to look at in 1 Peter chapter 3 actually begins back in chapter 2 in verses 11 and 12. And take a look at those if you would. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may, now notice, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. They may see because they're looking and they're evaluating. And then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, say that the unbelieving husbands of Christian wives are looking. Notice what the end of verse 1 and verse 2 say. These unbelieving husbands may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see, and that word translated see is the same one as in chapter 2 and verse 12. So in general, there is the onlooking world around us looking and who need to see that we march to the beat of a different drummer, that we have a different set of values. And in particular now in chapter 3, Christian wives who have an unbelieving husband are to behave in such a way that these unbelieving husbands see the purity and reverence of your lives. And most important in all of this is the fact that God is looking. Not only is the culture at large looking, are we really different? Not only might that unbelieving husband, if you're in a spiritual mismatch, be looking, but God Himself is looking. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says this. It speaks of the virtue of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
And so with all of that, the world needs to see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The unbeliever who's in your sphere of influence, in this case, in a, in a mi- spiritual mismatch of a home, needs to see the difference in your value system. And the question is, whose gaze do you care about most? Who is it that we're trying to impress? Whose version of what makes you beautiful do you really believe? The culture's looking, in general. Unbelievers in our sphere of influence are looking, and God Himself is looking. And who do you believe? Now, I've titled this message, as you see at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program, How to Become a Good-Looking Woman. I I bet you can't wait to hear what I have to say about, about that. But the truth is, that's the subject of the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. And it is addressed, as we will see, to wives, more generally to women. But the principles here apply to all of us who are called to be counter-cultural and to prioritize what God cares about most. So let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we come before you again acknowledging our need our need of your Spirit to guide us, to illuminate our minds, to turn on the light, as it were, so that we see the significance of what your Word tells us. Help us, Lord, to obey your Word, and help us to leave here changed, better equipped to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So how to become then from God's perspective, from a biblical perspective, a good-looking woman because the world is looking, because those in our sphere of influence are looking, because God is looking. How does that happen? First Peter chapter 3 teaches us, first of all, I say in the outline, that a good-looking woman submits. A good-looking woman submits. Verse number 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, wives are being addressed here to submit to unbelieving husbands. And the reason that wives are being singled out for six verses And husbands are only dealt with in one verse, verse 7, that we're going to look at together next week, is because Peter has tried to highlight in society several areas in which you have someone in power, someone in authority, and then someone in a potentially vulnerable position. And so he's done that going back to chapter 2 and verse 13, speaking of the king, the emperor, and his governors that he's delegated authority to and telling us as citizens who are vulnerable then to the power and authority of a whimsical emperor in that day to submit to the government. And then beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, in an employment situation, slaves are to submit to their their masters. These masters, according to the passage in chapter 2, could sometimes be harsh. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you saw that we... We, we, we have the word scoliosis, the Greek word from which we get scoliosis, translated in there to refer to these masters who could be harsh, crooked, morally bankrupt. 
And so you have citizens who are vulnerable to the authority and power of the government. You have employees who are vulnerable to the, the authority and power and moral bankruptcy of their bosses. And now you have women who are potentially at the mercy of their unbelieving husbands. And so he spends a lot of time on that. Now here's why. The church in general, God's people in general, to whom Peter was writing, were all in this very situation. They were being persecuted. They were vulnerable. And Peter is giving now several examples from segments of society as to how those who are vulnerable in society in general can in their particular sets of circumstances demonstrate Christ-like values. At the end of chapter 2 that we saw two weeks ago, Christ himself is our supreme example of how to behave in such vulnerable circumstances. And so a good-looking woman now, addressed because she's in this vulnerable position, is one who submits. And at the time that Peter wrote this, in the first century, the culture was one in which a woman was viewed to be inferior to a man by many. Let me read for you a quotation about the circumstances of the first century and how women were viewed. Dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man. Because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had, she was ruled rather by her emotions and as a result given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. Yikes. That's the way women were viewed by the culture in general in the first century at the time Peter wrote. But the Bible does not teach that women are in any way inferior to men, that they are intellectually substandard, that they're more prone to wickedness. But rather, the Bible teaches that men and women are equal, male and female are equal in their standing before God because... The Bible teaches at creation, the very first chapter of your Bible, that God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God is making sure that we know that both male and female are equal before Him in creation, made in His image. And then when you come to your New Testament, the Bible says that there is neither in Christ Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female for they are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is very clear that male and female are created equal before God, both equally in His image, have the same position and standing spiritually before Him. When we come to God through Jesus Christ, we have the same standing before Him as we are being remade into the image of God because of Christ. And yet at the same time, the Bible does not hesitate to tell us we have different roles to play. And so Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 says what we've read in verse 1 of our passage. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. You guys got the next verse there? All right. But it really says that, no lie. <clears throat> so you can jot that down for later reference. Ephesians 5.22 and in verse 7 of our passage, chapter 3 and verse 7, we've got, the, we've got the same thing. We're going to see verse 7 addressed to husbands next week, but in that verse it speaks of the fact that, that 
wives are co-heirs in verse 7 with men, with the husbands, of the gracious gift of life. And so the Bible makes it very clear that on the one hand we are equal in our standing before God, but on the other hand it is, does not hesitate to say we have different roles, different functions. Some people can't wrap their minds around that. They get the idea that if we don't play the same roles, therefore we must not be equal in who we are. The Bible says we are equal in who we are. We are unequal in what we do. Men don't have babies. It's made that way. It's a different function. But that doesn't make us unequal to, to women in our standing before God. And likewise, the differing function that God has assigned to, to females in the home does not in any way diminish their equal standing before God. The illustration of Christ, Jesus, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is one that's often used, and helpfully, I think, to show the, on the one hand, equality of Father, Son, and Spirit. On the other hand, the different functions, the different roles that they play. And so you know, many of you, that the Bible teaches very clearly that Christ, Jesus, is God. So the Bible says, for instance, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and notice, the Word was God. And so the only question now, very clearly, the Word is God. The only question is, is who is the Word? And you go down to verse 14, here's what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Now verse 14, the Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So whoever, whoever this word is that is equal with God, who came in human flesh, this is one who John says is full of grace and truth. Now who is this one full of grace and truth? Verse 17 of John chapter 1. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John makes very clear, John chapter 1, Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God. He is equal to the Father in who He is. But the Son also submits, has a different role that He plays as Son, equal to the Father in who He is. He plays a subordinate role in submitting to the Father. And so the Bible says very straightforwardly, the head of Christ is God. And so it does not diminish in the least the equality of men and women made in the image of God in order for us to play different roles that God has assigned to us. And God has assigned to the woman the role of submitting. And as we in general submit to the government, verse 13 of chapter 2, as we submit in employment situations, now wives submit in marital relations to their husbands. I've said to you in the prior messages on citizenship and on the workplace, this word submit means to place oneself under. In the case of the government, we place ourselves under the authority of the government. In the case of the workplace, the authority of our boss. And in the case of the home, the wife places herself under the authority of her husband. Now, we're going to see in just a bit, just like in the other realms, this is not unlimited authority, it's not absolute authority. There are times where it can and must be violated. But God has given us distinct functions, distinct roles to play, and a good-looking woman, from God's perspective, is one who first submits, but also, in your outline, she is one who evangelizes. 
A good-looking woman submits, but she also is one who evangelizes. Notice verse 1 again. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, the way this is written in the original language in which the New Testament came to us, Greek, it's called a, a condition of reality. That is, it was a fact that some to whom this was written had unbelieving husbands. So if any of them do not believe the word and some do not, there are most definitely some to whom this is written who have husbands who do not believe the word, then they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now two things should be noted about the wording of this passage. The word that's translated one, won over by the behavior of their wives. That word translated one was originally an economic term. It referred to your profit margin. The establishment of independence and rights yields no profit, neither for you, ladies, neither for the church, neither for eternity. But the evangelization of a lost husband is of great profit. He may be won over. And secondly, the text is also worded in a way that it indicates that the winning of this unbelieving husband is possible, but not probable. It is always possible with God, but not probable. And you think about that for a moment from a biblical worldview perspective. Isn't it the case that most people do not come to God through Jesus? The vast majority of people do not. Isn't that correct? Didn't Jesus say narrow is the way? But broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, that's, that's the way this is written. It's possible, but not probable. And I don't say that to diminish the hope that those ladies who are here have that God will reach into the heart of their unbelieving husband and save him. He most certainly can and does do that. But I say that because, one, that's the way this text is written, but also because I just want to say, as your pastor, this should be a lesson to us. Believers marry believers. God is very clear that the only kind of marriage that He condones is between two followers of the Lord Jesus. Some of you heard me say a few weeks ago, pity the poor young men who come around to date my daughters. And I say that tongue-in-cheek a bit, but I say it deadly serious. As far as it depends on me, they will be young men who are obvious followers of the Lord Jesus. God is gracious. If we have made the mistake, if we've committed the sin of departing from His way, rebelling against His Word, marrying an unbeliever, it is possible, there is hope. But let it be a lesson to all of our young people. As you look for a mate, if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're looking for a mate who also professes and serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says in verse number 1, they may be one, if any of them do not believe the Word, the word translated the word, logos, 
is a reference to the gospel. It's used in chapter 2 and verse 8 of the gospel as well. And the reason I say under this point that a good-looking woman not only submits but is now evangelistic, the reason I use that word evangelistic is because of this. It's because they're trying to win one who does not believe the word, which is a reference to the gospel. They don't believe the gospel. And the word evangel means one who is a messenger of good news, a messenger of the gospel. And so a good-looking woman from God's perspective is one who gives the good news, is a witness by her life to the good news of the gospel. But notice the method by which the wife is to seek to win her husband. Again, verse 1, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And so I say in your outline, a good-looking woman from God's perspective is evangelistic, and she witnesses, she evangelizes silently. She evangelizes, witnesses silently. Literally, at the end of verse 1, they may be won over without words. It's literally without a word. Now follow me here. Control and influence in a relationship can be demonstrated and exerted quite easily when you're the one in the stronger position. Right? So you're in a relationship, you're the emperor. You can show your power and authority and your control fairly easily. If you're the boss at work, you can do that. If you're the husband in the home, you can, you can do that. But what about when you're the, in the vulnerable position in a relationship? Your tendency can be, my tendency can be, all of our tendency can be to try to control and influence by words when we don't have power. And we can rest in doing neither, exercising physical power or trying to control by our words. We can avoid both of those. Hear this. When we recognize the control of another. When I'm in a vulnerable relationship, I may try to seize control of that relationship, not by power because I don't have it, but by the use of my words. But I don't have to do either of those. When I recognize that in every relationship, there is one who is ultimately in control. And then I can rest in that, and then, I, and then only can I obey what Peter is saying here, to win that husband over without a word. Now, the text in the NIV says, if any do not believe. But it's literally, if any do not obey. And just as Christian slaves are to submit to morally bankrupt, crooked masters, now Christian wives are to submit to unbelieving, disobeying husbands. So how does a woman do that? without a word. One, she's got to have this confidence that there is another who does have the power and the authority to reach this husband and control this husband, and I don't have to take it in, onto myself by the use of my words. She can do so silently, but I say secondly, she can witness not only silently, but softly. Softly. It says by the end of verse 1, one over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So you're in a vulnerable position. That's why Peter has singled this out, just like he did with citizens, just like he did with employees in the workplace. 
to make a point to the larger church that was in a vulnerable position in that first century circumstance. He He singled out wives, particularly wives of unbelieving husbands. You therefore don't have power, physical power in this situation, but here's what you do have. You do have what's called in politics soft power. Anybody ever heard that term? You know, hard power is military might. And you go in and you roll the tanks in and you show who's boss. But then you've got this notion of soft power. That's diplomacy. That's negotiation. That's, that's, that's talking. That's, that's your moral and your moral example in the world. America has been a great nation for many decades for a number of reasons. One is, yes, our military might. But beyond our military might is our shining example to the world. Soft power. And she witnesses, Peter is saying, softly because she wins over without words but rather by the behavior, the total lifestyle of her her life. This word behavior used at the end of verse 1 summarizes the godly conduct of believers. It's used in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, chapter 2, now in chapter 3 again. And it says they will be won by the behavior of their wives, verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Literally, as they observe your pure conduct in, and the word translated reverence is fear, phobos, phobia. So as these husbands see the godly fear, reverence that you have, you say, okay, this is already a really countercultural message. Just saying that wives are supposed to submit is not politically correct in our day. And now the text uses the word fear. So a woman is supposed to fear her husband? And the answer to that is no. The fear here is not of the husband, but rather of God. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 18. Slaves... In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Back in chapter 2 and verse 17, the verse just before that, it says, fear God, honor the king. This fear, this reverence in Peter is always directed toward God and not toward men. It's reverence for God, now hear this, ladies, that gives the confidence to behave in a way that is contrary to everything we want to do and contrary to our sin nature. And it is only because we have this reverent fear of God that we can carry out the instructions given here and engage this soft power, this soft witness. One author says submission is not to satisfy the husband's vanity or promote his reputation or to show how godly you are or to avoid conflict or to impress neighbors or church members or to manipulate or because you think that your husband is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and her trust in God. And because this is done in the presence of God, then it follows, does it not? that this authority that a husband has, just like the authority of a king or the authority of a boss, does not extend to disobeying God. It is not absolute. The woman is doing this out of reverence for God. Therefore, she could never disobey God as a means to reverence God. But in the first century world, 
in which Peter lived and wrote, wives were expected to do that very thing. They were expected to adopt the religion of their husbands. An historian who lived at that time named Plutarch said this, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most important friends. For this reason, it's proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. And so now here is Peter writing to Christian wives and saying, that is not so. That the one that you reverence, the one that you fear, the one in whose presence you carry out this command to exercise soft power in the life of that husband is God himself. And therefore you do not violate having but one God before you, the true and living God, Jesus Christ. And so a good-looking woman submits. She evangelizes. Notice in verses 3 and 4, she also, in your outline, internalizes. Internalizes. Verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, those statistics that I cited at the beginning, half a million dollars in the average lifetime for the average woman would seem to violate this in our obsession for outward beauty. A good-looking woman, from God's standpoint, internalizes. Ladies, hear this. There are a couple of ways to objectify an individual. Now, objectify, what does that mean? It's to make an object out of someone. That they are less a person and now more a thing, an object. There are at least two ways to do that. One is to cause that person to find their identity somewhere other than themselves, other, other than God and themselves, particularly to find their identity in you. If you can get a person to be in a codependent relationship so that they find their identity and their worth in someone else, you've objectified that person. They are now only useful as they're attached to you. In another way, is to find their value, objectify a person by finding their their value, not just their identity in someone else, but their value in another way than just who they are. And so their value is in how they look. So either finding your identity in someone else or your value in some other way than in who you are in relation to Christ, often by how you look. And either way, hear this, you are owned by the desires and the pleasures of others. The same guy, Plutarch, who said women should not have their own friends, also said this, It is not gold or precious stones or scarlet that makes a woman beautiful, but whatever invests her with that something which betokens dignity, good behavior, and modesty. So, Here he's saying something very similar to what Peter is commending. So here's a guy who said women don't really have their own identity. It's found in their husband. 
They get their friends from their husband. They get their religion from their husband. But then he is saying something in line with what Peter says. Now, how is that? What? It's because they're already owned. And that's why in Middle Eastern cultures very often, women who are owned are also very modest. Men already have what they want. They own them. That's one way to objectify a person. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century saw women as owned by men, and therefore because they were already owned by men, now they didn't have to objectify them in the second way. You'll often find there's an inverse relationship between the level of ownership and the public objectification that goes on with a person, particularly women. Now, in our culture, we, provide, we prize individuality. So our women's identity is not owned by men. And that's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. We prize individuality, but not modesty. And you see, there are two ways to objectify a person, to make them a thing or an object. And in both cases, you are owned by the pleasure of men. So you can be owned physically, or you can be owned psychologically and emotionally. And ladies, I'm telling you, with the pressure that our culture and our society puts on you to look a certain way, that's precisely what's happening. And these qualities that Peter commends, that are the soft power, that are to be the internal qualities that are going to, by God's grace, win over an unbelieving husband, these qualities are purity and, and reverence. And a gentle, verse 4, and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. They are, they are costly and they are precious to God and they are admired by men. In contrast to the cost in time and money of that which is condemned in this passage, ostentatious and seductive clothing. Now, there's nothing wrong with nice clothing. There's nothing wrong with, with jewelry. And this passage is not condemning either. As a matter of fact, literally the text says that you're... Your adornment, your beauty, verse 3, does not come from hairstyles, jewelry, or fine clothes. Literally, it says, or clothes. <laughs> so if you said you've got to get rid of hairstyles and you've got to get rid of jewelry, you also got to get rid of clothes. And Peter's clearly not saying that. So it's not that there's something wrong with having your hair done. There's something wrong with wearing jewelry. But it is the ostentation and it is the seductiveness, the lack of immodesty, because you have been objectified signifying that you belong to someone or something other than the true and living God. Let me say, just to us in general, there's a principle here that applies to other things from which we derive our sense of well-being. Too many women, because of the pressures of our culture, derive their well-being from how they look, and so they go chasing after it, and we've already talked about that. But how many of us in other realms find our well-being in the stuff, the external stuff that we chase after? So guys have got to have their guy toys. The sports car, the motorcycle, there's nothing wrong with those things. But we chase after them, and they become a sense of well-being for us. Is our well-being, dear Christian friends, from external things? Is it from our toys? Is it from our environment? 
God looks at what's most important. The character qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. Internalized. 1 Samuel chapter 16 gives this principle. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when verse 4 commends this gentle spirit, it's saying what the Lord Jesus said when He walked the earth and He gave the Beatitudes. And one of those blessings was, Blessed are the meek, that is the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. The word that's translated meek, same word for gentle here in verse 4, is a word that was used of a bit that would go into the mouth of a horse and guide its direction. It's a word that means this. Now hear this. This gentleness, this meekness is power that's under control. A woman has soft power, but it's power that's under control, under the control of her trust and her confidence in the God who is looking. Jesus used this word as well in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Gentle and a quiet spirit. The Apostle Paul spoke in 1 Timothy 2 of this quietness that women should demonstrate because of this confidence that they have that emanates from their trust in in God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And when it says in verse 4 that these things, this gentle and quiet spirit, are of great worth in God's sight, that word translated great worth, in verse 4, is the same word used of the expensive perfume. Do you remember that was broken and wiped on the feet of Jesus? Great value, a costly ointment that was used on Jesus. And these qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit are that which are of great worth to our God. A good-looking woman submits. She evangelizes. She internalizes. And lastly, she learns. She learns. Verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. A good-looking woman learns. She learns from other godly women. And so verse 5 speaks of the godly women of the past. Verse 6 then gives a specific example like Sarah, Abraham's wife, who who did this. So the question for us all, in particular ladies, is from whom do you get your instruction? From whom do you get your direction and your marching orders? Are you going to absorb it from the culture or are you going to consciously adopt it from Scripture and the examples given of godly women in Scripture. A godly woman learns from godly women. Titus instructs mature women to teach immature women. But how have those mature women become mature? They've done so because they were first learners. And these are women who, according to verse 5, put their hope in God. This confidence creates this soft power that they exercise without words in their relationships, in particular a relationship with an unsaved husband. She learns from other godly women, and lastly in your outline, she imitates other godly women, like Sarah. Now, you remember Abraham's wife, Sarah. You remember the story. They were childless, and God says, I'm going to give you a child. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. Sarah laughs at this promise. She names the child when the child comes Isaac, whose name means laughter. 
So this is the punchline of a joke. You've got to be kidding. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of the waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he had given to Abraham, and now she's told she's going to have this child at this advanced age, she could very easily have not just laughed but have been disrespectful. But that's what verse 6 is saying, that she referred to him with this respectful term, Lord. Not literally Lord as in the Lord Jesus, but as in someone with whom she's in an authority submission relationship. Sarah still referred to Abraham with respect even though she was old and the situation was literally laughable. Now, how do you do this? And we'll be done. It is only because you have a relationship with this God in whom, verse 5 says, these women of the past put their hope. And because you have this relationship with that God, the God who made you even and equal with men, the God who has come himself as man to die for you in the good news that is the gospel. If you have that, if you believe that, then you can trust that God in any and every situation. And you need not, ladies, take matters into your own hands. You can have this kind of quiet and gentle example, purity and re- pure and reverent lives, and without words, demonstrate the difference that Christ makes because you have this confidence in the God who owned you by right of creation and bought you by right of redemption. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, we glorify God when our Christ-like actions speak louder than our words. I just want to finish by saying, dear friends, that applies not just to wives with unbelieving husbands, but to every situation to which God calls us, male and female, young and old. We demonstrate that we believe something radically different when we live lives that are radically different because of what we claim to believe. Now, we have one final item of business to take care of, and then we'll have our closing song. And that is, we have a family who is seeking to join our church. And I'll have uh, Roger and Desiree. But this is Roger and Desiree Myers. And Roger and Desiree, you, most of you have gotten to know because they've been guests at our church for many, many months now, wisely taking a good long time to check out our church, what we believe, how we operate. And they have determined that this is the place where the Lord would have them to uh, grow and to, to serve. So they've gone through our membership application process, filled out the application. They've gone through an interview process. They have signed our church covenant. So we know their testimony of salvation and of baptism. Because of all of that, we as a leadership team now can recommend to our congregation uh, heartily them for membership in our church. And so we want to receive them by vote of the membership, all in favor of receiving Roger and Desiree Myers into the membership of our church, signify by saying amen, amen. Any opposed? Say no. Of course, there are none. But we're delighted to have you guys uh, with us. And as is our custom, after we sing our closing song, then those who are members of our church come on around the front here and welcome these guys into our fellowship.